you've ever followed a discussion on Twitter about forecasting of renewable energy, about electric vehicles and whether their emissions are more or less than internal combustion, about electric vehicles versus fuel cells, about the future of trucking, long distance trucking, sooner or later, you'll end up at some posts by my guest today on cleaning up, Alka Hoekstra. Alka is a researcher at the Eindhoven Technical University. He also runs his own small consulting business, Zenmo Solutions, and he's an authority on everything renewable energy. Let's bring Alka into the conversation. Hi, Michael. Good evening, Alka. Hi, Michael. Very Great good to see, see you see again. You. And it's fabulous to see you in person because on Twitter and when we talk on the telephone, I forget that you really look like an energy guru look, should look like. I have this little rubbishy beard, but you know, you really look the part. Thank you. Um, and I hope you've got with you, because it is, we're both in Europe and it's the evening, so we're both allowed to have a, a, a yes. drink. I, cheers. And I, I've done a few of these with Australians and Americans, and it's all very embarrassing because they sit there drinking water and coffee and I'm drinking and I'm drinking beer, but, um, but there you go. That's the way it rolls. Now, when you're close to Belgium or something, uh, you, love, you love beer, I would say. So. Oh, don't get me started. Uh, I, 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 would I should do this with a duffel, but this is actually alcohol-free. It's net zero. I'm going to yes, be driving yes, later. Yes. Now, um, we, we met, as with so many of my uh, energy friends now, uh, on what, what is colloquially known as energy Twitter. Yes. There's a, a bunch of people very active and um, we really get stuck into the details of, of discussions and your name, your posts, you know, we're talking now probably 10 years ago, just kept coming to my attention. And um, so I was, I first became aware of you as this, you know, as this, this guy who was kind of always right on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and you were doing some really interesting things on tracking forecasts of renewable energy against outturn, which I was also doing, but not, uh, not I was behind you. How did you get into that? Yes, by the way, did you know you were, you were one of the first people who sort of discovered me. <laughs> I was still, uh, there was nobody who knew me on Twitter when you uh, sort of got interested in me. And I was also in Holland, I was still trying to make my mark, so to speak, trying to convince people, that even though I lacked the credentials back then, I was, I was, was thinking about it. And you immediately saw, wow, this guy, He's he's onto something. So so yeah, I, I like to see you as someone who's very good at spotting trends. <laughs> and and in, in my case, you you immediately picked out the stuff where I where I was right. Well, it, it it was you know it was very notable that you know a lot of the people who are authoritative and they kind of point to their papers and their work, they are with universities, they're with companies, they're they're kind of known. And then there was you, um, whose work that you were pointing to was a blog. And then there was a sort of, you know, there, there was a, I tried to find out a bit more about you and I found that you had just been on a sabbatical and, uh, and, and so on. And then you'd, you know, you, you had been doing some R programming with your wife and it was kind of a very non-traditional background for a real guru and an expert. Um, but that was what I found. But so take, let's go back to that period. What were you, what were you actually doing sort of uh, with your time and what, how were you, why were you doing what you were doing? Yeah, so in, in a nutshell, I was a project leader for internet projects and I've, I've seen how the PC came and I, I, I sort of saw that and how the internet came and how the, 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 the mobile phone came and how the smartphone came and all the time I was one of the first people saying, look, this is logical, this is going to be the next big thing, but I got bored basically. So I, I took a sabbatical and um, indeed together with my wife, I, uh, who is a programmer, I, I did some, uh, some uh, yeah, I learned how to do better statistical modeling, that sort of stuff. And I basically found out that solar, wind, uh, uh, batteries, electric vehicles were very predictable, fast growing um, uh, phenomena, which were sort of not given their due, I think, in the, in, in, in the bigger community, EAI, et cetera. And so from there, 
I basically chose after the sabbatical, I'll, I'll work on this. So I had no background whatsoever. Right. So I wrote a couple and of books. And which year was the sabbatical? Which year was all of that kind of... Uh, 13 years ago. So that's uh, 2007, 2008. So you took... you And so then, so before that, you were doing IT. Yes. And, but then around 2007, eight, you just said, this is all old stuff, boring, but there's this new thing. And I think I see something that other people are not seeing in terms of what's going to happen next, right? Yeah. And I had enough money on the bank, basically, to, to try something new. And I thought, let's make my life worthwhile, basically, by choosing a mission that... And I also thought that there must be some way to you know, earn a living there. It turned out it was not so easy in the beginning. Right now, it, it, it's, it's quite doable. But in the beginning, it was quite small. You also noticed, probably, that when you started BNF, uh, it, it was harder then <laughs> than it is now. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I started BNF, the, you know, even if we go back to 2004, 2005, even when people were very interested, corporates were very interested, banks were interested, they had no budget for information services. Exactly. That really came, well, 2006, 7, 8, 9. I mean, around, yeah. actually, if you think it was hard when you started, you should have tried it in 2004. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands um, off to you. <laughs> but, but just a question, though, did you come to the solar and all the energy stuff? You know, there's a few different motivations, and I'm always fascinated. Was it intellectually interesting did you think i'm going to make some money or was it the environment and the planet you know what were the sort of underlying motivations for choosing the sector yeah the money was was basically something i thought there should be some way to make some money but it was absolutely not important for me i was making very good money before that i, I i'm not making that kind of money now and i don't i don't need to right so, so not the money the, right. so the first reason was was really the, the, the environmental angle, I always, I learned from my elders, basically from my mother and my, my father, that we should ditch fossil fuels someday and, and we're ruining the planet basically, but it's probably not going to change because, you know, <clears throat> we being who we are, and then I found out, hey, but it is going to change. Let's change it quicker. And then it also became a, a sort of intellectual puzzle. And, and it's interesting because, um... The guest, actually, the episode has just gone live today as we film this. Um, it is episode, I think, 12 with Ramiz Nam, who's another of the energy mm. Twitter, um, who spotted these trends. It's quite often people, myself as well, who came out of an IT background who see, you know, Moore's law is like, well, yeah, obviously. And then you look <laughs> at solar and it's obvious. But if you come out of oil and gas, Solar's astonishing cost reduction. Exactly, exactly. I really have a very strong feeling yes. that the ICT guys, for them, this feels native, all these learning curves, yeah. and, and etc. And for the energy world, the, the traditional energy world, this is very alien. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I still get asked, when does the experience curve in solar stop? And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't stop. But of course, if you're, you know, digging coal by the time once you decide where to dig and you build your railway that's it your costs are largely going to remain the same for you know it's just yeah. very very different sort of economics exactly and yeah. you you um and that, so you, you you did the sabbatical and then you were i mean what, what was your plan of action sort of coming out of that because then okay you still needed to get engaged and and build a, what, yeah. so a basically i had a very like, very very, how it went is very simple. Let, let's just uh, cut to the chase and, and we can get into the super interesting topics that, <laughs> that people like even more than my background, maybe. I wrote a couple of books in Dutch because I thought, well, when I do that, uh, people will sort of, sort of believe that I'm an expert. Fortunately, they got uh, published by the ministry and then people believed I was an expert. I did the, 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 the rounds uh, speaking at Congress, etc. Then I got hired by the largest grid operator because they said, we really want to know what the impact's going to be of all this new stuff on our grid. And I knew the CEO back then. So, so uh, yeah, swell. And then I found out, wow, this university, uh, for example, Eindhoven, they're finding out stuff that, that, that's, that's way ahead, basically, of, of where, where, where the, the grid operator is and where the energy companies are. I should be there because there is where the newest stuff is happening. So I said to the grid operator, could I please be at the university? You still pay me quite handsomely actually, but I'm gonna start a PhD. So I'm, I'm, I became the best paid PhD, I think from the University of Eindhoven, <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it worked. 
And then I basically said, okay, I can keep doing this on the money of the grid operator. I'll start my own company. So that's how I now make my living. And I'm going to try to, 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 to start some new initiatives at the TU Eindhoven. So now I, that, that succeeded. So now I have 35 people potentially, because we're still in the starting phase, at least are funded working on this new project of mine and I'm doing my own consulting company. So that's sort okay, of- And that big project is something called Neon. Right. right. Give me the sketch of Neon, give everybody our, 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 um, our audience a sketch, and then we'll probably come back to it in more detail because I want to get into some of the topics that you've kind of um, dug, dug into along that route. But uh, Neon, 35 researchers, um, are they all hired? I notice you are hiring uh, until yeah, recently. We, no, we, 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 we've only hired 10 or so so, so far. We'll put a link into the show notes. So if anybody can, uh, if anybody wants to, then they can yeah, If still you have a, a good background in uh, sustainable energy and you're really interested in, in modeling it and um, sort of getting a grasp of, of how things will go from here, then I think it should be interesting for you to apply. And, and what is the purpose of NEON? What are, you, what, are you, what are you modeling with NEON? Okay, now basically we had the kickoff, the big kickoff actually last week and it went fabulously, it was really, really nice. Uh, um, and basically the, 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 the central point of NEON is let's bring together researchers from very different backgrounds. So people who know about psychology people who know about sociology and where society wants to go, people who know about regulation. And then of course, the large contingent that's always there of the, of let's say the beta scientists, the people who know about windmills, about solar energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we made a, a group of 20 uh, uh, um, uh, professors basically and 20 companies from all these different uh, angles. And the whole point of NEON is Let's try to bring all these fields, all these viewpoints together in a model that can enable, um, basically, instead of writing it down, I call it quantified narrative, instead of just writing it down as a story. Right. But it's a narrative of, of what? Of what, what's the, what, are you mod what are you modeling? How we get away from fossil fuels. Uh, and so so the, the, the tagline is, neon lights the way to zero emission uh, energy and mobility for the Netherlands, for Holland. Um, for officially, yes, that's that's what we have the money for. But <laughs> we want to we want to we want to look 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 broader. Okay, so I, I'm going to cut. I, I I have a kind of shorthand when I explain to people what you do. I say basically, he's building a whole a Holland simulator to run energy scenarios. Is that a fair description? That's a fair description. Actually, my last master student said, when I started my master thesis, I was very unsure how, I, I didn't feel like I had a grip on the energy transition, on the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy uh, and electric vehicles, et cetera. And now I have, I feel like I, I, I made a cockpit and I'm the pilot now. So now I can choose how this energy transition right goes basically in the computer and you're using agent-based modeling yourself is exactly. that all of neon is going to be on based on and, and uh, or, or or does everybody use their own methodology no 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 the agent-based modeling is going to be the, the way to bring everybody together at okay. least so tell us because I, I what i'm trying to do with these conversations is you know bridge between you know enormous expertise and you know anybody out there who's just interested and you know some people are relatively new to all of this so tell me what is an agent-based model and what is a not agent-based model and why what you're doing is better yeah so um agent-based modeling is is a, a quite recent development actually uh it's sometimes called even a third way of doing science although that's maybe a little bit a little bit big, but the, the, the idea is that you basically make a duplicate of the real world in a computer, like a strategy game, basically, or a computer game. And you sort of replay the, 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 the reality uh, in different scenarios, because of course uh, you can replay the, the world. We can run a simulation, uh, we can build a new world and, and simulate how the, how the world could, so we have to simulate in the computer. So we make a, a, a copy 
a, a simplified copy of the of the of reality in the computer. And what is, uh, uh, I would say, um, the, the core of agent-based modeling is that everything that happens happens because entities, mostly humans, but can also be cars or or machines. Yeah. They, they live their life, I would say, that they, that they take their own decisions based on their own environment. And the whole entire system basically emerges from that. So it is very different from a usual model where you basically say, this is how it works. And now let's try different settings. I don't know how it works. I just say, um, Michael is going to buy, uh, finally going to buy uh, uh, an electric vehicle because now there's, there's going to be this new 4x4 which seats seven children or something. So now he finally has a chance. So now he can make, so, so this is an agent that's basically close to you. There's another so, agent. So, yeah. Yeah. And then presumably you, you do say, right, how many people are there like Michael or something like that? Exactly, so exactly. So, 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 wow. so we, we, we make a population, right? Yeah. That resembles the real world and it can be very heterogeneous. Right, so it can be we, we can be have thousands of different types of people, not millions or, or billions, but thousands at least. Uh, so Michael is basically representative then for uh, let's say ten thousand people in the Netherlands that are close to Michael, etc. And everybody has its own position. That's also something that most models cannot do. So, for example, if That's you right. live in the country, you will buy other cars than when you live in the in the center of the city, right? So. Positioning makes, a, and, and also the grid, for example, makes a, makes a big difference, of course, where you are on, on what problems you cause on the grid, et cetera, et cetera, makes for renewable energy, makes a lot of difference where everything happens. So a windmill can be an agent. And if the windmill is in the middle of Holland, it will produce much less energy than it's in the middle of the North Sea, for example. So positioning is, it, it, is spatially explicit, as they say in modeling terms. And then it's temporally explicit. So it happens over time with short time steps of 15 minutes or something. And you can really see how this world evolves and how people make different decisions every, every 15 minutes. And you must see sort of clusters of behaviors. Some people who, have, uh, who, who put together, um, a, I don't know, this many holidays with this sort of vehicle, but they want to live in that sort of uh, apartment or that. Where, and of course, the, this classical model the systems dynamics type model, well, um, they tend to sort of say, well, everybody replaces their car after 15.2 years. And then they say, exactly. well, if that was 14 years, but they don't, exactly. as one group replaces it every, every year and another one that keeps it for 30 years, right? Exactly, exactly. So if you really model those, those early adopters and those laggards, but, but even more specifically, if you find that people who are, so, so this is exactly the sort of dynamics that, you can find with agent-based models and in system dynamics, for example, you have to aggregate into a few kind of, so there's not Michael, there's, there's basically, let's say one or two or three types of consumers and they have all the same behavior and, and that's it. And by the yeah. way, if I, if I may, economic models, most economic models are still equilibrium models. So system, this is even simpler, I would say in a way than system dynamics models. And, and you have this rational actor, you know, so there's, there's this guy, so basically, we have one consumer, he knows his utility function, he knows exactly what he wants, he knows exactly where to get it, he knows the exact entire market, he's completely rational, and this is not how it works. Right, right, and, and, uh, and you're going to tell me his name is William Nordhaus, and he makes these rational decisions. No, and, no, 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 I, I, I'm, not, I'm not completely sure uh, what exactly the modeling uh, that Nordhaus does. Uh, is but I think so. Yes. By the way. Yes. yes I think. Well, they're certainly rational. It's about you know, these. Um, but but, uh, but yeah. Integrated uh, assessment models are based on some kind of a rational actor adding resources to an energy system. But okay, so that's your sort of that's what you're doing. But along the way, you came across and you've been you know immersed in other people's forecasts. And I'm thinking particular of the IEA. You call it the EAR, but that's in Dutch. So we call it IEA, International Energy Agency. And a few years back, I don't know when you first did it, but you basically sort of, it was, it was palpable that you were just hugely unimpressed. And, you, and you, you did this analysis, which is actually an absolute classic. There's a whole genre now, which I've contributed to, an analysis showing, look, this is the forecast and this is the outturn and then there's a new forecast and then there's a new outturn. so how did you get into doing that 
but actually the IEA, I should say, I'm saying I'm pronouncing it right now, IEA? IEA, yes. Yeah, the yeah. IEA was one, was, was one of the parties that really got me into the energy transition because during this sabbatical, I, I found their forecast and I found a book published by the IEA or at least sponsored by the IEA by a professor which explains learning curves which were completely at odds with their regular forecasts. And then I thought, oh my God, I know this. I know this from internet and all these other, this is the big experts who tell things are never going. So the IEA was actually um, instrumental in, in, as a sort of, uh, to, 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 as, as a way to say, at least I know that they're doing it wrong, so I should be doing differently. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's funny because I go back to the early days of um, New Energy Finance, 2004, 5, 6. I mean, I mean these IEA uh, forecasts at the time were, it was essentially that renewable energy, modern renewable, not, um, not uh, hydro, so wind, solar, bio, mm -hmm. geo, all that stuff, would be, you know, 1% of electricity or less forever. I mean, yeah, that was exactly, 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 exactly. Flatline. And, and, and they would and say, they, they would say such nice things about them. Like, like, like let, let's, let's, let's treat them very nicely, but they will be small forever. Yeah, and then, but it's not, I want to make sure that everybody realizes it's not just the IEA. I mean, it is the Americans have, a, have one called the, the EIA, yeah. the Energy Information Administration, but it was also all the big oil companies. They were all producing these forecasts saying- Everybody, fact, yeah. Um, you know, they were saying, some of them were saying until very recently um, that, that, you know, all of this stuff doesn't add up to a hill of beans. And what yeah. was funny was, I remember around 2007 or eight, these forecasts were so were so bad that I knew, you see, because New Energy Finance, we were tracking financings, which is a leading indicator of installations, right? Because you finance, you make a, finan a final investment decision before you build. So we knew what was in the pipeline and it was bigger than what these, some of these forecasters were saying could, was going to happen in like, 10 years later or 20 years later. And I was like, look, we already, I can list the projects that prove your forecasts are, are wrong. You know, it, as I say, in one year, they're gonna be wrong by 10 years or whatever. Yeah, so so basically we we agree 100% and you were five years earlier or something. So so uh, hats off to you. But you, were the, but, but you put this beautiful graphic together, which is the, the grandfather of all the analysis, all of these. Um, now, what, uh, what I basically I, did, what I basically did is I said, um, they're looking from a fossil perspective, how much energy gets burned in total, et cetera. That's not how this works. If you look at solar, basically the same thing you were doing with the pipeline. If you look at solar, you have to say, we have an industry that can build an X number of solar panels. And this industry that builds X number of solar panels per year then, does this industry, is this industry going to grow? Right. Has it grown? Or is it going down? And if you sort of transformed the IEA uh, uh, predictions and plotted them on that kind of thinking, because you could right. easily so you reverse took the sort of first that. derivative, didn't you? You sort of said, okay, exactly. Um, and and actually, that was the brilliance of it because I've I, going back to my early days as an analyst in in the mid '80s, drawing a chart of showing forecasts and outturns. I call them hedgehog charts because quite often they kind of look. They go like yeah. this and they look like yeah, yeah, yeah. they've got spines like a porcupine or a hedgehog. But what was great about what you did was you took the derivative, right? You said, okay, well, if because everybody was talking cumulative, exactly. they were all talking about cumulative solar. There'd be this much solar, there'd be that much solar in place. And what you said is, yeah, but the assumption behind that is that they're only adding this much year by year. And you proved that it was going down. So you, you proved yeah. that they were assuming that these industries were all about to go into a massive recession, wind and solar, both of them. And, and that was the brilliance to show that, that that's what they were founding it on. Exactly. That's and that's also, I think what people didn't understand that, that if you build solar panels, you know, if you have a factory building solar panels, if this factory doesn't go bankrupt, it will add a certain output every year. So, um, uh, taking the first derivative is actually very close to how the world operates in solar. 
you know, for solar, it's not cumulative. Solar is, is, is how big are the plants going to be this year and next yeah. year, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at it from that perspective, if you take the derivative, it was very close to the actual way the, 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 the industry worked, then all the predictions became completely nonsensical. Completely nonsensical. And, and even a few years ago, I think it was only two years ago, two or three years ago at most, the, the EIA forecast for solar was essentially 40 gigawatts globally to be added forever or for the next 20, 30 years each year. And I knew that there were single companies in China that, were, that had an investment plan that was you know, approved by their board and, and, and that was to, to, um, to build factories with outputs of something like 30 or 40 gigawatts of silicon or cells or whatever. So single players in China were going to be outputting more than the entire forecast for the globe in these forecasts. So anyway, I, I, we, we, yeah. we agree. I, I don't completely on ridiculous. the spot. I don't want to put you on the spot, Michael, but you're not, you're, you're, you're great friends now with the IEA. Doesn't yeah. it feel strange? <laughs> Sorry? Doesn't it feel strange? Well, not really, no, because I tell you what, they have always, always done an absolutely brilliant uh, job of herding the basic data. Everything true, you do, true. everything I do, we could not do it without the IEA True. working yeah. with countries because it's not just that they get they gather the data. They have to work with the companies to explain the data, to normalize the data, and then year in and year out. So that was always brilliant. And then um, the there are their output is not just a single scenario. I mean, I used to get very upset with them when they talked about reference scenario. Right? And then they move to the, you know, the reference scenario is always this one that no policies ever change um, because it's kind of what happens if you don't change. Well, if you model, if your scenario for the future is based on your existing policy, then any sector which is new is always disadvantaged. There's a systematic problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they did, um, they did uh, you know, uh, new policies and then they've done the technology futures. They've done the sustainable development scenarios. And, you know, I, I, I think that they have gotten on the forecasting, which they call scenarios, but it's clearly forecasting, they've gotten much better. I still think it's conservative. But of course, you know, and I know, by the way, we have a new target, which is, you know, we've spent years sort of pushing for the IEA and by the way, also the oil companies to, to, to base their work on, on current costs and on much more realistic assumptions. And then we've discovered the whole world of the IPCC modeling where the IEA is not actually pessimistic about clean energy. It's absolutely at the, at the leading bleeding edge of optimism compared to what the IPCC modelers are coming up with. Yeah, right? so, so, so in my, in my, in my uh, uh, worldview, we now have, let's say, three kind of actors. The first is, uh, uh, and I would just like to single them you mean out because you I mean think it's really important. Modelers. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so first we have, let's say, the IPCC, which basically uses science that is very old and models that are very large to predict the future based on assumptions that are completely outdated. Then we have, let's say the EAR, we have the energy world, I would say the energy community. IEA. The energy community yeah. is, is much less behind the curve, I would say. So, so, so therefore more optimistic in our world. But still, I would, I would, I would like to say that I think what is most important, I would like, if, if readers are listening, uh, apply if you, if you, if you agree <laughs> to, to Neon, because I think the future um, wh where we're going to make the biggest difference is parties that look ahead and say, look, we have those learning curves. How can we actually speed up those learning curves? So not only are we going to be optimistic or at least realistic, but also we're going to find out what are the tipping points that we can use to to sort of make the system completely out of whack as soon as possible because we need that we need tipping points and so the EAA I would say is conservative and is sort of rejecting tipping points and we actually not need to look for those tipping points and actually need to exploit them we really need that so yeah. I would say we need to be sort of like the the the, the, the destabilizing modelers that find out how can you make the system change as quickly as possible. 
Well, you're opening up, I mean, there's a whole um, a, a fascinating question about um, whether we are sort of modeling the future or building the future. And of course, in a chaotic system, it may actually be uh, where, where modeling it might require infinite resources, but changing it might only require finite resources. So maybe we should just forget, just stop kidding ourselves that we're modeling. And certainly, I mean, it's, it's what's funny for me, because I came, like you, I was not an expert. I came out of IT.com, all sorts of things. Um, and the idea that I might actually be in a position of sufficient influence that what I say about a sector changes the trajectory of that sector is amusing. Yes. So, so basically, that's actually, you, you always have a way of framing things better than I do. So the framing should be, we have the, the science that is very much behind the curve. Unfortunately, we have the EAR, the energy community, that is a little bit more current, but still, still sort of lagging a little bit in predictive power. And then we have the people who are actually going to make the future happen by predicting it. We're going to change the future. That's the, the whole point of our models. Yes. So around the time that I started to, to really kind of get under the skin of these forecasts, five, 2005, six, seven, there was a forecast of um, wind and solar by Greenpeace. And I loved it because it was completely bonkers. These, you know, the curve went shooting up like this. And I liked it because, not because I agreed with it, but because you then had all of the conventional modelers down here saying nothing ever changes. And you had Greenpeace going, oh, it's going to go like this. And I could go somewhere in between and say, well, this is what I think is going to happen. And I didn't seem like the crazy people because there was crazy Greenpeace. So, so Greenpeace, yep. they sort of opened an Overton. They, they removed the Overton window. They removed the you, Overton right? window and, and they served a fantastic function of the, you know, of, of the activist, you know, whatever. Here's the funny thing, though. There was also about seven or eight, 10 years after that, which would have been you know, 2015 time, 2016, there was an analysis of whose forecasts had been the best. Greenpeace. And it was Greenpeace. And I, I know, spoke I, to I the, didn't want to jump. I didn't want to no, jump. No, it to was jump, Greenpeace. But, yeah. And I spoke to the modeler, just to come back to the point about whether we're modeling or building the future. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, really, you know, as the French say, chapeau, hats off. You really did a good job. He said, oh, no, we didn't forecast anything. We said what we wanted to have happen, and then we went out and we um, worked as activists to make it happen. But still, still, what you always see, um, I, I love it, but, but, but what you always see with learning curves, with exponential developments, people collectively underestimate it. So it's, it's basically, yeah. if, if I was sort of betting, a, a betting person, I would also always bet on the highest forecast Tony Siba, let's, let's not go there, but the highest more or less realistic forecast, and they would usually be right. Well, but yes, although, you know, since you've raised his name, I mean, the problem with that only is that you have to have numbers that add up and, and stuff that isn't patently stupid, because anybody can pull a high forecast out, you know, you say 10, I say 12, you say you say 12, I say 15, you know, so I, I but, but what I look yeah, at so, is so, actually, so just to come back to that, if I may, yeah. what we're trying to do with Neon is basically we're going to tell each other stories right. of how you want the future to be, but then we have to make them work in a quantified model. And exactly. actually that's pretty hard. Most stories you pull out of your hat, actually you can't make them work if you really try to get input from all experts. But, but if you can get them to work, if you find a really thrilling yeah. story, and if you can get it to work in, for example, our Neo model, then you're sitting on something. Right. No, and that's great because then the numbers still add up. I mean, I'm just yeah, looking, exactly. you know, I'm just a little bit um, allergic to, to Siba because in his modeling, what he said was that the ratio, battery costs are going to go down and the ratio between the battery and the car stays the same. So a car ends up costing, you know, a, a, a Mercedes, you know, that seven seat SUV you're talking about ends up costing I don't know, five or $10,000. I mean, it's just stupid stuff. And it, and it so, makes so it very I think, difficult I think, so, for, for us, is, is, you know, I think we're trying Siba, to be serious and yeah. it makes it harder. Yeah, I think Siba is absolutely visionary. He's, 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 he's very good at framing stuff that I think a lot of people are, are sort of latching onto and, and, and it's directionally right. right. But his quantif quantifications, I, I cannot agree yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. No. So let's move on because otherwise I'll have to think of other nasty things to say uh, about him. Um, so, but one of the things that that um, you 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 get a lot of pushback. So this idea that 
solar and of course to a lesser extent wind but also you know i'm working with this company ever and it's geothermal they will also have a learning curve you know it's heavy engineering it's mm -hmm. a bit different but um but batteries that there will be these learning curves and it will look more like it than it looks like oil gas coal uh, and so on some people really find it difficult to get their heads around that and they start talking about things like energy return on energy invested and there's always oh a God. subtext behind it <laughs> yes 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 by the way one 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 quick anecdote that i really like um i know uh, a good friend uh, who, who his company has coined the term wi-fi so he was ahead of the curve uh uh, uh and he he sold it and 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 he's 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 yeah he and then another friend um he started the first isp in the netherlands and they said to me, explain to us the, the, the energy transition. So I prepared a very, very big presentation. And after three minutes, they said, yeah, we get it. Can we just skip the slides ourselves? And they went through all the slides of my 45 minute presentation in three minutes and said, yeah, all completely plain. Uh, so this is a, sort of a very extreme example to me and a very uh, humbling example of how normal this 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 cutting edge energy transition thinking is for visionaries in, in ICT. They really get it. So just yeah. to underscore your point. That's right. And you know, and we of course if you go off to California, then they'll talk about singularities, uh, what you call tipping points, singularities. Yeah. Um, and it is very a very natural vocabulary for somebody who has not been educated in you know oil gas coal nuclear um exactly and and but 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 okay yeah Let, now, let's on, move on. on on um energy return i want to just because we started yeah, exactly. that's one of yeah. the one of the objections that's raised but i think you did some stuff looking at well the solar panels can make the solar panels uh yeah and i i, I almost thought have i inspired elon musk because he was saying <laughs> it at battery day probably not probably uh, uh it's it's independent thinking but but he also said it if if we start making solar panels using solar panels and windmills using windmills and we use those for the mines and for the factories our emissions can basically go to zero so that's a very important sort of mental model that co2 emissions if you use renewable technology to produce renewable technology you can get extremely close to zero so yeah. basically forget co2 if if, if you will but then energy return on investment um i've never understood how so many people can fall for that because it's 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 completely clear that if you take the energy influx of this of the sun into the to, to the earth system that all the foundational works around e energy return on investment they become bollocks to use your term right it, <laughs> it's it's nonsense um, and then if you look more closely yeah you, you basically see that they're sort of, sort of very i think emotionally attached to this idea that that growth must be finite so basically they're they're degrowth dis uh, disciples are you, are you, yeah, mm -hmm. right? who, who use um energy return on investment as, as a way to sort of give some some sort of scientific source to their thinking but but yeah it, it's simply not so true the, the energy return on energy investment i've usually had uh, thrown at me by nuclear fans so not degrowthers they may use it as well but i've had it because nuclear you know they say oh well it's got a 60x return and uh, and let's say solar has got a 20x so nuclear must be better and of course a 20x return over a 20-year lifetime and a 60x return over a 60x lifetime are identical. They are dynamically identical. Yes. And because what's important is not the ER, it's not the energy return, it's the energy return per year. And, and it, it drives, and it doesn't drive me crazy. I just feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for people who raise this stuff without understanding how stupid it sounds. But but but, but do you have the feeling that there are also, let's say, academic luminaries who throw it at you or, or is this simply it's people who it's people who are not thinking they're not thinking for themselves they're just using a meme or they, and it could be academics or it could be twitterati um but they're not 
they're not really thinking. And also, I, and I think what they're doing, what, essentially what's happening is it's motivated reasoning. You know, they've decided they like thorium. And so then they'll use whatever and some others. I mean, to come back to the, the degrowth, um, the, the degrowth is, I mean, that one is usually the way I, the, what usually it's about how much material is used, sort of how much copper, how much glass, how much of everything. And that is something that I think that the, a lot yeah. of, clean energy you know fans haven't yet got their head around and they need to that exactly. this transition is going to involve a lot of mining exactly it's and i think i think by the way ultimately everything will be recycled and you can stop mining but in the interim the next few decades going to be a lot of mining get over it do it properly do it ethically but there's going to be a lot of mining exactly and i Exactly. That's that's also where I'm sort of directing everybody, um, um, yeah, in neon and around it now. And I say CO2, we are managing that. We're we're going too slow. We have to speed it up. But but this is let's say philosophically, we sort of solved that. We're not there yet by a long by any especially no, imagine. We're near peak emissions. Is my exactly. thesis, we, and we, we need will, to we'll, we'll manage. Yeah. We have to go down much quicker. Quicker, but yeah. this is sort of. We will, in the end, we'll we'll get very close to zero emissions, but we'll will not get very close to to zero resources in a very very long time. On the contrary, the resource use will go up. So I think the biggest uh, wins right now are to be made in uh, more uh, sustainable mining, basically, because often uh, the, uh, even small changing or at least cost-wise small changing to mining practices can often bring enormous differences in terms of environmental impact and basically by the way below resource use is biodiversity if you use a lot of resources for example from a mine which basically is in the middle of nowhere and um, if you dig harder the, the surface area for example of the mine more or less stays the same it's no problem the problem arises and there's some very good recent literature on this when you open new mines everywhere, and for example, close to, to natural uh, areas, yeah. and you do this without uh, without thinking through what your impact will be, because often you can uh, limit this impact quite easily. And, and this is really something that, for example, the European Union and Great Britain, hopefully together still, uh, can sort of push, push uh, towards, because it's super well, it's very, very interesting. Um, I don't know if you noticed that I've been appointed to the Board of Trade or to, as advisor to the Board of Trade. And these issues are, I, I have to get my head around what we can do because obviously, you know, whether we're importing finished goods or raw materials, the terms under which we do it need to be, I, I don't know, the question is, do you build them into your trade deals or do you deal with them separately but still aggressively, because we can't just let, you know, we, we can't just say, well, we're all virtuous, we're going to net zero, but there's these horrible things happening in, in, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, or wherever. Exactly. Yeah, so I think, and, and, yeah. And, and, and it must be, you know, coming back to the, you know, degrowth, as I, you know, it's kind of, you know, it is amazing how people almost decide whether they are pro-thorium anti-capitalists or pro you know um sort of technology enabled human progress and then everything else is sort of just fits in the, the you know it, 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 the people are not solving like your models they don't just let the thoughts and the data go and sort of let let the let the answers emerge do they no i i find that a lot of people are are, are extremely invested in being pro or anti-capitalism, pro or anti-growth, pro or, pro or anti-technology. And, and on a deep level, I've never understood this. For me, um, it's very simple. We have to improve happiness and reduce suffering. And I wanna make life on earth, basically help life on earth in all its diversity stay healthy, stay the same. So, so these are my basic goals and anything that helps in that direction is okay with me. And if but more technology doesn't yeah. work, it doesn't work. But what's great about what you do, and the reason that so many paths lead to you and your work is that you just relentlessly expose the figures. 
I get involved in some of the kind of, I sometimes call it culture hacking, which is basically getting into arguments, right? Um, you know, with RCP 8.5, this absurd, absurd scenario from the IPCC, I started the, the hashtag RCP 8.5 uh, is bollocks, because I, but you know, I could, you, were, you were just, you know, trying with people that I consider to have been, have left rational thought long before you were still trying to argue, dis, not argue, but discuss. And, and, and another one I want to bring up, actually, I don't want to go down the RCP 8.5 rabbit hole too much. Um, the one, one recently that you have been brilliant at, at um, you know, informing was uh, internal combustion engines versus electric where some people are so invested in, I don't know what, resisting something that they, you know, will produce these very biased, well, not very, I mean, you tell me, what were they producing? Yeah, yeah, How yeah, did you yeah. deal with it? Yeah, no, actually, um, yeah, so, so what I did a couple of times now, um, and, and, and I think it's one of my most valuable contributions, even though it's intellectually boring by now, is basically every time someone comes out with a study saying, Yes, but electric vehicles, when you look at everything, they actually emit more CO2 to basically squash that, to basically squat that every single time. Very, very, very boring, but it's, it's, it's easier. But um, so this is electric vehicles are, you know, emit more on a whole life, life cycle basis than diesel. And, and how many times have we seen that? How many times have you seen the story? Um, well, very often, but I, I think uh, th there's about six or seven serious studies that I try to debunk, basically. Yeah. But, and, but and um, if I may, uh, so, yeah. so, so I think most people by now get that uh, battery production is emitting less and less and less CO2, that the grid is greening uh, continuously. And, and for that reason, that basically the only scenario in at, at least in the future most people get that uh, to get to low CO2 is either uh, electric or, or hydrogen. Maybe you can uh, look into that later. But what I would also use this, like to use this podcast for is to point out that I've never, I've been very much into trucks, you know, electric trucks. Right. He and and for vehicles. five years yeah. or so, I've been looking for the reason that electric vehicles, electric cars, yeah, that will work. But electric trucks, that's something different. And for five years, I've been talking to everybody, basically asking them, so what makes trucks so special? Why can't it work for trucks? Right. And I've never, ever gotten a good answer. And I've done a couple of studies myself. I have five uh, master students now who did uh, parts for me. And basically, my conclusion is that if you electrify a truck thoroughly then the weight you gain by changing in the drivetrain the diesel drivetrain and and and, and 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 the tank for the electric drivetrain plus the battery that in four or five years that's basically a wash a wash right right so 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 just to complete on the on the on the inter in case anybody who is new to this uh didn't quite uh follow you've essentially proven and you've debunked repeatedly that it's simply not true that diesel is better than EV. You've debunked that completely. completely. Right? Just in case yes. anybody didn't pick that up in this conversation. Right? Yes, yes. Just, now, just go, go, to, go to Twitter, Alke Hoekstra, and you will just go to Twitter, yeah. Alke Hoekstra, and I can convince you there. Yeah. And, and you've been recognized, you know, I think it was, was it um, VW, uh, the CEO of VW? I mean, people have referred to your stuff now at the very highest levels. You've kind of yeah, won. I, I really love the fact that, that two weeks ago, that uh, 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 Mr. Dees, who is the CEO right. of uh, Volkswagen, which yeah. is now the biggest, comp biggest, biggest car maker in the world, at least in terms of number of, of vehicles, uh, basically said, listen to this guy because he's, he, he yeah. knows where his towel is. Okay, yeah. but now you've got this, this other um, uh, campaign. Crusade. I'm gonna call it a campaign because they are like campaigns. Crusade. <laughs> and that is, yeah, I don't use the word crusade because it's got implications on, but a campaign. Okay, 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 okay. yeah, right? okay, that, yeah, you're right. Just, you know, I don't want to, I don't go there, so that's easy. Um, yeah, campaign. And, um, yeah. and you're, this is about electrification of trucks. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I think you get so much pushback. It is from the hydrogen fuel cell car uh, brigade. And they have, because that was one we, we have also interacted on, that it's now, I think, 
finally, my campaign was to get people to understand that a hydrogen fuel cell car for most use cases is absolutely foolish, very inefficient, very complicated, makes you go and you know to hydrogen fueling stations every week, which don't even exist rather than charging in the home, et cetera, et cetera. But now the hydrogen brigade have decided that trucks are, can only possibly be done via hydrogen. And I think that's why they push back when you say, oh no, actually they work just fine, you know, the same as a, as, a, as a car, as a light vehicle. I think that's why you get that pushback. Yeah, I think so too. And I think also because they sort of accepted that they can't have cars, so they at least want to have trucks. Yeah. But I'm sorry, they can't have trucks. And not because I say so, because reality <laughs> says so. Okay, so let's do the truck thing in a bit more detail now. The What you're saying, because the, the argument that always comes, oh no, the battery is too heavy, yeah, right? The battery is too heavy, you couldn't possibly do a big vehicle, the battery is too heavy. And then what you've said is that... Is yeah, that so I say, so, so um, first of all, you have to understand that um, um, people are always comparing with diesel that can go, let's say 2000 kilometers and then quickly uh, take more diesel and uh, uh, you can go through all of Europe um, continuously driving. And if you can't replicate that, you don't have a good product. And right. now with, with hydrogen, maybe you can sort of get into direction, in, in, yeah, directly into the same area. But what I first found out uh, also a couple, of, a couple of years ago, uh, so, so still fresh, is that actually most trucks drive between 500 and 750 kilometers a day, and then they get back to where they started. So that's 80% of trucks, they, dr they drive 500, 750 And this is heavy vehicles. I mean, all the delivery vans, all the small no, ones I, don't I, even sorry. do that. Yeah, that's, they, that's do, right. they do 100 miles. They do I, I'm just talking about the 40 tons, the big ones. Right. Because actually most CO2 is emitted, most diesel is used in the transport in the freight sector by these big ones. And these other ones are also nice, but they are basically, either they follow cars, they're basically cars with a, with a, with a, with a loading area, or they are in between the big trucks and, and the cars. And this in-between category, yeah, with all due respect, is a small category. So I'm focusing on the big ones. The, the, the big semis, rigs, no? the big rigs, as the they call rig. them. Exactly, yeah. the 18-wheelers, that sort of stuff. Actually, most of the, of the diesel is burned in those, in those vehicles if you look at freight. And it has always been sort of the dogma that those vehicles, they cannot be electrified. And first thing I found out is they drive 500 to 750 kilometers a day, almost never more. So let's say 10, 20% drive more, but, but almost never more. And usually they come back to the same place where they started, the, the truck driver simply goes home to mama or, 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 or papa, whatever, and, 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 and eats, and the next day is another day. So this whole idea of the trucker, you know, um, going through all of Europe and, and, and getting away from home for six weeks is actually a small percentage of truckers. Most truckers go from Rotterdam, for example, to Venlo, to, to the southern Netherlands. There they are repacked, and then they go to, to yeah. another area, which is, let's say, Two, 300 kilometers further and that's it so if you know that you know that you don't need a battery for seven thousand over two thousand kilometers it's simply not a business case for that if you have a battery for 750 kilometers even if you cannot fast charge right even if you have no charging infrastructure at all on the road then 750 kilometers is fine great 80 percent of trucks that's enough so then you start to look, okay, for those 80% of trucks, so forget the 20%, those 80% of trucks, how much does it weigh to have a, a battery that can go 750 kilometers? And at the end of the day, if you also look at the fact that they are often uh, driving empty, they're driving back often empty, et cetera, then the average energy use is about 1.3 kilowatt hours per, per kilometer. So you end up with about one megawatt hour batteries, big batteries, I agree. I agree, but one, one is that like 10 Teslas, exactly. 10 Tesla S's. 10, 10 big X's. Teslas, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. So then you're into the category of right now, I would say 4,000, 4,500 kilograms, four and a half tons. But in the future, if battery day, for example, pans out or a number of other uh, companies which are doing the same pan out, you actually get below Three three thousand five hundred kilograms for a battery right. of one megawatt hour. 
<clears throat> and then you look at the drivetrain and you see, wait, if you place electric motors be, be, between, the, between the wheels, instead of going the, the, the route with, with a very long drive shaft and a differential and all that sort of stuff, which is actually pretty heavy if you have a 40 ton truck, then you can save about three to three and a half thousand kilograms just from changing the drivetrain to electric that way. So that basically means that in four or five years, we can have a drivetrain, a, a complete assembly that weighs the same. Now, if you, so, so, so basically just to, to, to finish this then, just to make sure that the, that the readers understand, in four to five years, basically if we use the current technology that is being used in cars, and would transplant that to trucks, which is not being done at the moment. But just imagine that we use uh, simply car technology in trucks. Then we would have trucks that weigh the same and can go this 750 kilometers. And they, 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 they are about one third of, 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 the, of the cost per kilometer uh, in terms of... Yeah. Uh, 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 so that's and a cleaner, really good business case. And more pleasant to drive because the... You know, the London taxis that are electric, you talk to the drivers, they would never go back to a diesel because of the vibrations and the unpleasantness. Exactly. And at, 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 at traffic light, you are much faster at a traffic light, for example, which is also nice if you're a truck driver. Yeah. I'm fascinated whenever it comes to this. I, I'm always fascinated by what does it do to the grid? Um, and of course, the other thing you've got, you know, even if the even if a driver is driving those 2000 kilometers, the driver still only has the same size bladder as, as you or I. And in fact, regulation means they have to stop. So if you do have rapid charging, then even the 2000 kilometer um, journey becomes feasible. Exactly. In, in, in um, Europe, every four and a half hours, you have to you have to have a break of 45 minutes. And you that's could that's charge mandatory. a truck, but it's then you need you need megawatts of charging. Right. Exactly. So, so uh, what I always like to say is um, uh, to point out to people, uh, sorry uh, uh, to, to sort of uh, go astray there, that those fast charges, they're important, but they're not that important. Actually, right. um, if most, for most trucks, if they can get home, basically, to where they started, which most trucks do, then overnight you can charge them. And then right. let's say 50 kilowatts charger it's a, it's a fast charger for cars but for a truck that would be a slow charger but anyway such a charger uh would sort of yeah you have to go 10 times as fast because the 10 times as big because the battery is 10 times as, as large so 50 yeah. kilowatt charger well if you had a if you had a megawatt of battery that would be 20 hours so you need a bit more than 50. yeah you're right you're right you might need a couple you, 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 but you i think the other thing that was interesting i think you and i also um we interacted with um siemens and then there's a very a uh, brilliant um, Cambridge professor called David Seabon, who's been looking at using um, catenaries. And yeah. I think one could also do the, do the work on, under, on contactless charging. Because my thesis is that the, the way this is likely to go, is all urban um, transport, all of it, goes electric. Buses, cars, taxis, the I whole think lot. So too. Delivery, yeah. et cetera. And all of the large trucks that are just going, you know, sort of around the periphery of the city. So now each city is going to be effectively electric. So London will be electric, Manchester will be electric, Birmingham will be electric, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and so on. And so now if you want to drive a truck between them, why wouldn't you just have a, if you have to, why don't you just put some catenaries up the M1 and you're done? Why would you have a whole different fleet? Of hydrogen fuel cell trucks with all of their stations and hydrogen and complexity and the workshops will have two sorts of trucks to deal with one that does these deliveries and one that does that delivery every so often so it just feels like the simplest solution is going to be just electric everywhere just electric everywhere can, can i can i can i relate to that in two parts yeah because you're basically raising two points you're raising catenaries now and uh, fuel cells and for the fuel cells, I would like to, to make two points very quickly. The first is that for trucks, actually, fuel cells are more problematic. People don't understand that, but are more problematic because even though they're lighter, so that's true, simply if you, if you have a one megawatt hour battery and you replace it with the equivalent in, 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 uh, in hydrogen tanks, so to speak, they are lighter. 
that's true, but they are much more voluminous. You're and right. If you go with the current setup, which is very ingrained in the industry of, of the semi, you know, of the, of, 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 of the, the tractor and the trailer, which the are independent of each other, yeah. then you have to find a way to put everything, everything you, you take with you in the tractor. And actually, um, putting another three and a half thousand kilograms of battery in a, tra in a tractor, as I just described, is no problem at all because you can actually save that kind of, kind of weight in the drivetrain. Now, you can be a little bit lighter, theoretically speaking, if you take hydrogen, but where the hell do you get the room to put all that hydrogen? So actually, it, it's not that simple to go hydrogen. But apart from, from, from uh, hydrogen being relatively inefficient, relative, relatively um, uh, uh, expensive and, 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 and voluminous, um, catenary, right? I, I've always thought that catenary is sort of the ideal solution, but I'm also a bit skeptical uh, to the to the migration path because um, yeah will people like those basically the, the technology is simple we we're doing this with trains for a very long time now so so it's not rocket science at all um, but 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 you sketch for example cars having um, a, a way to 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 reach up to three and a half meters or something four and a half meters probably. Oh. I don't think catenary would be for cars. I think it okay. would be buses okay. and trucks. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, my, my concern is we're running out of time. We're going to have to come back and do more of this uh, at a later date because, you know, I look at it and say, well, you know, if you combine uh, catenary charging or contactless charging for, with driverless, you know, if I say, if you throw this thing up the M1 and it can charge as it goes, and if that driver, I don't, I'm not a big believer in driverless taxis. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever see the full um, taxi bot, but if a driver going on a motorway can, you know, can, can go into a platoon and just follow the truck in front or the bus in front, then I, you know, I think that that's where it's going to, and then the catenary makes sense because you, you, what you don't want is drivers falling asleep and pulling the wires down and doing all sorts of stuff. So I, I'm reasonably sure that that solution will beat anything else, cost-wise, effectiveness-wise, efficiency of use of electricity or renewable uh, uh, clean energy, and so on. I think I think the biggest um, advantage of of catenary systems is that you need much less resources. You need much yes. smaller batteries. That, that's I think the biggest advantage. And the second advantage is, of course, that you need. Yeah, basically lose no time whatsoever for charging. So that makes them very interesting. And, and I mean, don't, you know, we must never forget, we just never lose an opportunity to say, you don't waste half of your electricity going from electricity to hydrogen and then from hydrogen back to electricity, which is the stupidest thing that, 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 that sensible people seem quite happy to consider. Exactly. There's, there's, there's one, I must, sorry to complicate things, one sort of exception if we ever make a pipeline or something like that from for example morocco or uh, places where there is lots of solar and lots of room um, uh, to here then you could basically take the same solar panels put them there have them be twice as effective there yeah. and pump the hydrogen over so except it'll be cheaper to build a cable and bring the electricity in but you don't have to believe me because you're building the agent-based models that will answer all these questions. Exactly. So actually, I shouldn't be saying things like that. I should be saying, well, I really want to know what NEON is going to come up with. Uh, I hope that you're going to do the difficult sectors, heating. I hope you're going to do shipping. I hope you're going to do um, the heavy Aviation. transportation. I hope you're going to do glass, the glass industry, and all sorts of difficult uh, to, to decarbonize sectors but we won't be able to cover them today because unfortunately we're sort of running out of um, out of time. Maybe I should come back in one year or something when we have some new answers. I, I think that would be an absolutely excellent idea, particularly if I'm still doing cleaning up, which I don't see any reason why I wouldn't be. Um, you will be. I've been, I, I, my goal is to do one a week uh, and hopefully not run out of friends, but you'll always be welcome back. Um, so. With that, I'm going to thank you for spending time this evening um, with me here. 
and I wish you best of luck with your 35 PhDs and, and brilliant uh, geniuses that are modeling, building that, um, that, 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 that Holland simulator so that we can all learn from it. Thank you very much, Michael. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Alka. Good night. Good night. So that was Alka Haugstrat, researcher at the Technical University of Eindhoven. And next time you're on Twitter and you're getting into an argument about electric vehicles, electric trucks, growth rates of renewable energy, solar in particular, look out for him. I'll give you his handle. It's at Alka Haugstrat. We'll put a link in the show notes. My guest next week on Cleaning Up worked his way up the system at the UN, becoming Director General of UNIDO. At that point, he was tasked by the Secretary General of the UN to pull together all of the UN's activities around energy. He did it with great vision, great passion, and that resulted in the creation of SE for All, and then eventually became what we now know as SDG 7, the Sustainable Development Goal 7. Please join me next week for my conversation with Kande Yamkela. Mm -hmm.